Our scripture reading today is out of Book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. The word of the Lord. Thanks, John. Well, as I mentioned uh, um, earlier, we're starting a new series of messages today called Prayer as Life. You could also call it Prayer as, as Living or the Prayerful Life because what I'm wanting to do is get past this idea of prayer as merely saying prayers or talking to God. Those are both very legitimate forms of prayer, but prayer is much bigger. Prayer is much bigger than saying prayers. And so over the next several weeks, this, the rest of this month and through July, we're going to be looking at prayer. And, and I want to share some thoughts and teaching about prayer at a broad, big level. What is this concept of prayer and how is it different than prayers that we say um, in our lives? When I was a little boy, my parents taught me um, uh, three prayers that were really important for a young Catholic boy. I grew up in Catholic Church. And those three prayers were the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, which we just prayed a minute ago, the Hail Mary, and the Glory Be. And the reason that my mom taught me these three prayers is because she gave me a rosary, which is a beaded, um, looks like a necklace, but you don't wear it in, you know, around your neck. You put it in your pocket. And when you're out and about and you find yourself in trouble or in a time of need, you can pull out your rosary and you can pray these prayers that you, you know, memorized when, when you were little and find comfort and acknowledge that God is with you wherever you are are in, in the world. And so I would pray these prayers, and they were meaningful for me um, as a child, and they still are uh, to, to this day. And this is the way that I was introduced to prayer. And it's really a, a great way to be introduced to prayer. It's the way we should be introduced to prayer when we're five years old. Um, and in the great mystery of God, continuing to pray those prayers is a wonderful thing um, into adulthood. So there, there's a place for recited prayer, not only in worship, but even in our personal lives. Even in Spanish, there are two different words for prayer. There's rezar, which, which means like to recite, like recited prayer, like the Lord's Prayer. And then there's orar, which is like more like uh, conversational, um, extemporaneous kinds of prayer. And there's place for, for both. But in this series, I want to look at the bigger picture of what prayer is all about. 
A couple of months ago, I was um, in the garage doing what I do almost every time that I go into the garage, which is I was lamenting how much clutter is in our garage, um, how many boxes that we still have not unpacked when we moved here two years ago. And, you know, many of us probably have more stuff than we need, some clutter laying around the house. So I'm probably not alone in this. Um, and we've got to kind of figure out um, what to do with this stuff. Some of it needs to go to goodwill. Some of it might need to find a place in our house. And some of it probably needs to go in the, uh, you know, the circular um, recycling bin, the trash can. Um, lots of clutter and lots of stuff that we don't really know what to do with and where to put it in our house. When I was in there, I was reminded again of how much clutter we tend to keep, not only physical clutter, but emotional and mental clutter that we keep in our lives as well. And then right in the midst of that, I was looking in one of these boxes that had some books in it, and I pulled out this little book by Henry Nouwen called The Only Necessary Thing. And it happens to be one of my favorite books on prayer because it's all about how prayer is meant to clear out the clutter in our lives. And the book is written by Henry Nouwen. Uh, Father Henry Nouwen was a... Uh, he was a Dutch priest, he was a, a professor, a psychologist, a prolific writer. He taught, he taught psychology at Notre Dame and then he taught pastoral theology at Harvard and Yale Divinity Schools before he left the highfalutin Ivory Tower Academia to become a pastor um, at the large community serving people with intellectual disabilities where he remained for the rest of his life. He died when he was 64 years old of a sudden heart attack in 1990. And I, I serve on the, um, the board and as a trustee for the Henry Nouwen Legacy, and, and it's a really fun thing. And so the book that I'm talking about, The Only Necessary Thing, um, and I would suggest if you would like to read along throughout the summer, the title comes from this very famous passage that uh, John read for us a moment ago. It takes place early in Jesus' ministry, and he stops by the home of a family that he really loves, this family he's deeply, you know, close friends with, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, two sisters and their brother. You might remember Lazarus later on in the story of Jesus. Lazarus dies, Jesus shows up late, and then he raises him from the dead. But this happens this story happens earlier in the life of Jesus, and, uh, and Jesus is showing up to be a guest in their home. And what happens is that these two sisters take an entirely different approach to being in the presence of Jesus. One of the sisters, Martha, is preoccupied with getting everything ready for the meal, right? She's in the kitchen, she's doing the pasta, she's fixing everything, she's scurrying about, and she's upset because she's doing all the work while Mary is just sitting there with Jesus, enamored, doing nothing, just sitting there. And she actually, uh, Martha asks Jesus to scold her sister. Can't you tell her to, you know, do something? I'm the one doing all the work. But Jesus, in good Jesus fashion, turns the spotlight onto Martha, and he says this, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. One thing is necessary, 
Mary has chosen the better part, and it won't be taken away from her. One thing is necessary. The only necessary thing is to be with Jesus. There's only one necessary thing, Martha, and it's not scurrying around, getting ready for this dinner for my disciples and me and whoever else must be coming to this dinner. Yes, those things are important, but Mary has chosen the one necessary thing. She's sitting at my feet attentively, listening, soaking in my words. That's prayer, what Mary is doing. And notice that she's not reciting anything. She's not using any words. She's just present and available to Jesus. It says she was sitting at his feet. I, I doubt that she was even aware that Martha was scurrying about. Now, I've heard a lot of sermons, and I've preached a couple on Mary and Martha, and ev probably every single one that I've heard, and most likely both of the ones that I preached, we tend to make excuses for Martha. We say, yeah, Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, but, you know, let's not be too hard on Martha. After all, we need Martha's. Um, and in fact, the, as you start to think about it more, we start to realize that the church doesn't even function without Martha's. And then we just kind of for, can forget about Mary altogether and say, are there any Martha's out there? We need some Martha's to make sandwiches and to, and to build some buildings next Saturday. And we kind of forget about Mary altogether. All and I understand that. We do need Martha's. But the problem is with the text. The story is that Mary chose to be attentive to the words of Jesus and Martha was distracted. The story is that Mary was in prayer and Martha was not. There is a time and place to lift up the Marthas of the world, but not necessarily from this text. In fact, I think my perspective is that there needs to be a Mary and a Martha in each of us. And in fact, the Martha needs to flow out of the Mary. Um, the question is, are we a Martha or are we a Mary when it comes to our prayer life? Or do we even have a prayer life is probably where we should begin. So Mary's choice was to sit attentively. Martha's choice was to scurry around. She had the Savior of the world right there in her living room, but she had to keep checking the pasta if only she knew. But we're very much that way. So what is the difference between prayers and prayer? Well, for one thing, prayers are initiated by us. We, we initiate prayers. We say prayers. We uh, enter in, we talk to God, we recite a prayer like the Lord's Prayer. Or when we're at our wit's end and we run out of all of our resources, we say, help God. Um, and prayers are usually centered on us. They're about our needs and our requests. Now, sometimes we, we intercede on behalf of others throughout the week in the prayer chain and here on worship, and that's wonderful. But for the most part, most of the average Christians in America, their prayer life kind of just consists of verbalizing requests for ourselves. It's not bad. It's just not very profound. It's kind of like a green circle, like a bunny hill, you know? I mean, there comes a time when you need to move on from the bunny hill. 
Um, it would be kind of like a, being in a marriage where all you did was told the other person all of your needs for that particular day, and then you just left. I mean, it probably wouldn't go over too well in a marriage. Why would it be any different with, with God? How, how does God feel when all we do is tell him to give us everything that we want? This kind of praying, while it has its place, it does very little to change or to transform the person who is praying. I've been involved in Christian communities my whole life, and I don't see a lot of transformation that comes out of the lives of people whose prayer life consists of nothing other than just verbalizing personal requests to God. Prayer, on the other hand, is what Mary did. She was in the presence of Jesus, and she set aside distractions. That's prayer. And prayer is not initiated by us. Prayers are initiated by us, but prayer is initiated by God. You know, God wants to be in communion immensely more with you than you want to be in communion with God. You might have doubts about God. You might have doubts about being in communion and in fellowship and in intimate relationship with God. God has no doubts about you. God has no doubts about being in intimate friendship and communion with you. Not a doubt in the world. And so there is the sense that God is the one who is initiating prayer constantly and we're the responders. There's a huge difference. So we should enter into prayer with that awareness that God is beckoning us, calling out to us. It's not that we pick up the phone and give God a call who's busy doing something else and he leaves that in order to then take our call and then we tell him what we want and then we hang up the phone and then we go. It's precisely the opposite. God is always calling you. And when you enter into prayer, what you are doing is you're picking up the phone. And when you pick up the phone when somebody calls you, you don't pick up the phone and say, hey, I've got this horrible business meeting coming up this week and my spouse is really bugging me. Do you think you can help me with this? No, if you did that, the person would probably hang up. What do you do when you pick up the phone when somebody calls you? You, you, you say hello and you kind of pause. You, you wait for them to initiate the call. And this is a good practical tip when it comes to prayer. To pause and to attend to the one who is calling us first and who is initiating prayer. So we're, we're wise to begin prayer uh, with a posture of, God, what do you want from me? What can I do for you? That's how we answer a call. Uh, one of the things that I love when we pray together as a staff and or when we pray together with staff in this session, um, our executive administrator, Sheila Barnish, whenever it's her turn to, to verbalize her prayers, she won't say anything for like 20 seconds. And if, if, you've, if you've not been in prayer with her before and you don't know her, you, you're probably thinking to yourself, does she know that she's supposed to be praying right now? This is kind of like awkward silence. Somebody else, should somebody else jump in? Should we nudge her? But the fact is that she actually is praying in the way of Mary. She begins in silence 
attending to Jesus and then after this pause and centering herself on God's call, out of that silence, she speaks and verbalizes her prayer. I love it. It's a wonderful way to think about it. Um, so prayer is first responding to God's initiating call in our life to be in communion with him. The deep in God is calling to the deep in us. This is what the psalmist said. Deep calls to deep at the thunder of your cataracts. All your waves and your billows have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. It's the deep in God that is calling to the deep in us that brings us into Jesus' presence where we set aside our distractions. That's prayer. And it's initiated by God, not by us. And it's centered on God, not on us. Calling to the deep in us to set aside our distractions and to be attentive. Now this kind of prayer changes everything. This kind of prayer will transform your life because this kind of prayer is a place of conversion. It changes us through intimacy and through love. Um, how so? How does it do that? How does this kind of prayer change us? Well, Nowen says in his book that this kind of prayer, sitting attentively at the feet of Jesus, the one, one thing that it does is that it leads us away from false certainties to true uncertainties. Don't you love that? I just love that. Let me say that again. In the presence of Jesus, we are led from false certainties to true uncertainties. Don't you know some religious people who are just so certain about everything? They know exactly who's going to heaven and who isn't. They know exactly what the doctrine of the atonement should look like and doesn't. They know exactly who's a heretic and who isn't. They know exactly what social issue is the most important. They're full of false certainties. But in the presence of Jesus, we are led into true uncertainties, true mysteries, we might say. I mean, we're talking about God here. God, God isn't like a frog that you can just dissect and pick apart and figure it all out. And of course, in order to do that, you'd have to kill him first. And good luck with that one. So there are uncertainties in dealing with God because God is so much bigger and larger. We enter into the mystery. We're brought into this mystery when we come in contact with Jesus and it's initiated by Jesus and we're simply sitting in his presence. And then it leads us away. As it leads us away from false certainties, it also leads us away from false belongings or false attachments. Let me read this to you. Henry writes, Prayer is the act in which we divest ourselves of all false belongings and we become free to belong to God and to God alone. I love that. When I was looking through the garage and the boxes that we have down in there, I got to tell you, there are quite a bit of false belongings in the garage, things that promised me something when I bought it 10 years ago that never, I'm thinking specifically of a fishing pole that is still in its packaging. It promised to change my life, um, but it has become a false belonging. Um, maybe at some point I'll, I'll get into it, but anyway. 
Um, this kind of prayer that I'm talking about is a place of conversion, a change from one thing to another. It's not just a place of comfort. When we say prayers, we're usually looking for comfort. We're not, we're not detaching ourselves or divesting ourselves from attachments. We're looking for comfort. But when we set ourselves in the presence of Jesus, without any requests, on his terms and on his agenda, that's when conversion starts to happen. There's an unmasking process that begins to take place. We discover who we really are and who we're really not. You see, we have this sense as we grow through our lives and into adulthood and into society that little by little we start putting these masks on and these masks are masks that are given to us by our particular tribe, people who think and act the same way that we do, that tell us what kinds of cars we should drive, what kind of jobs we should have, and schools we should go to. They tell us who we're supposed to be. Our parents told us who we're supposed to be. We had traumas in our lives who told us who we weren't. And all these things that become this mask of who we think we, we are, and in prayer, the mask is lifted off. It's not always a pleasant experience, except that it's getting you down to what is true. One of the images that Henry uses to describe this is the image of scaffolding on a building. God is about taking the scaffolding off that false self that Thomas Merton talked about or the egoic self that we've created for ourselves. We want to impress that person and we want to have this much money and we want to look a certain way and we don't want to get old and we want to be funny and we want to be liked and we don't want to be misunderstood. All of these things, it's all the scaffolding around us, but it's not who we truly are. And when you look at this Notre Dame Cathedral, you just want it to be restored and you want to take that scaffolding down bit by bit. And that's exactly what God wants to do with you in prayer. He's already restored you in your baptism. Now he's wanting to take the scaffolding off to get to the beauty of who he created you to be. So prayer is an intimacy with God. It's attentiveness to God. And prayer is letting God do God's work in your life rather than asking God to do your work through his power. There's a big difference there. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, because there is a sense of poverty that comes with this kind of, of prayer. You th things are stripped away and you feel vulnerable. And that's when we turn to God in surrender and we give up the exhausting pursuit of self-mastery. That's what we've been trained to do in our culture, in our society, and even in evangelical cultures as well and, and other religious cultures is self-mastery. The heart of the spiritual life is not self-mastery, it's self-surrender. It's surrender into the beautiful hands of a loving God. Um, and so here's the irony. The more that we do this, the more that we pattern our prayer in this way of being attentive to the one who is calling to us, who is initiating with us, the more we learn about this God of love. 
the God that Jesus described and put on display. And so we learn more about this God, but as we learn more about this God, the irony is then that we learn more about ourselves as well. Last week, Devin and I were celebrating um, 20 years of marriage and we had a trip in southern Utah and um, we visited a, a number of places. We started in Moab and we went to Arches and Canyonlands and then we went um, down towards Escalante and we went through Capitol Reef and Escalante and then we actually didn't get to Bryce. I wrote this before. We went on our trip, so we didn't even get to Bryce Canyon, but we went through Red Canyon. And one of the funny things is that we were so excited about this trip, and I was sharing with people about what we were doing. And since, you know, we're kind of new to Utah and stuff, people were laughing at me, saying, you're crazy. You think you're going to go to all these places and see all these these, um, national parks in one week? You can't scratch the surface of one of these parks in three months. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, but that's what we're going to do. And that's what we did. And they were totally right because you look out over the vista and, um, and, and over some, you know, red rock and, and it's just totally amazing. And we could go on this trip every single year and not see the same thing twice for the rest of our lives. And, and you know what? So is your inner life. Your, your soul is southern Utah. And it's got slot canyons, and it's got natural bridges, and it's got waterfalls, and it's got some erosion, um, and and that and some those areas that just makes it look all the more beautiful and interesting. You know that myth that says that we um, we only use like ten percent of our brains. Well, it's been debunked. It's not true, but you know it was like a. A myth for a while. I do wonder, however, if we really only access about 10% of our souls. And the more we sit at the feet of Jesus, the more of our own inner landscape do we come to discover and see and appreciate and even love because it's created by God. And we'll get past the scaffolding and God will take a bunch of it apart And we'll get to that true side of who God made us to be when the scriptures say that God formed us in our mother's womb. As Christians, if we don't engage in this kind of prayer, we will just live on the surface of life and never get to the center. As one author put it, we're a circumference people and we have little access to the center. We'll live on the surface. We won't get to the depth if we don't develop a life of prayer and not just prayers but prayer we'll just be the victims of every demanding voice every voice that says you should have done this this way or or every voice that praises you for doing this or that we'll just be dancing to the tune that others play for us and yet Paul says when we find this out in prayer it is no longer we who live but Christ who lives in us. And when that happens, Henry says our compulsions begin to to melt away and we find that we're being formed again like little children into the mature human beings that God made us to be. God, we thank you for calling out to us and for beckoning us to be in your presence. 
Help us to see and to find you in all things, in all places, in all people, in all experiences. Help us to know of your suffering in our suffering. Help us to know of your glory through Jesus Christ. Lead us by your spirit. Amen. Amen.